So welcome, welcome to uh, The Well. My name is Pastor Josh, if you do not know, and I'm excited for uh, today. Uh, we're going to be diving in, and we're nearing the end of uh, a six-month journey through the book uh, of Acts. And before we get to uh, our text today, I want to start out by sharing a story with you. So uh, roughly, uh, it was probably, what, five years ago um, now, uh, five years ago or so, my family and I um, were still living in Florida, and uh, some search, certain situations and circumstances occurred in our lives where uh, my wife uh, needed to step away from her position uh, at her job, and um, through that uh, situation of her becoming a stay-at-home mom, uh, I had uh, decided that I was going to take on a second job outside of ministry uh, to kind of offset some of the costs that come with raising uh, four children, um, and, and so, uh, or soon to be four children. She was pregnant with uh, our youngest, Jedediah, and, um, and so I decided I was going to go back into the food uh, industry, which was a mistake, uh, by the way. Anybody here serve in the food industry? Uh, it's, it's not um, for the faint of heart. Uh, it's really not. Uh, and so uh, I had worked in the food industry, I had managed in the food industry, so I figured, you know what, I can go back and I'll wait tables at the local Olive Garden. I know the staff there because my wife and I seem to eat, eat there frequently. And so I said, I'll go, we, we know people there. Uh, and so I started working at Olive Garden, waiting tables, uh, busting tables, whatever it is that uh, I needed to do. And it was just a few short weeks into me working there uh, that my coworkers began to ask questions why is it that every single time one of our bosses who's, who was, had an attitude all the time, why is it that every single time they ask you to do something, you just do it? You, and, and I couldn't understand why the question, that, like that's, that's a, a concept that you should do. This is your job. If your boss asks you to do it, you just do it, right? I thought everybody understood that. I thought everybody knew that. And soon I came to this place where I realized they weren't asking why I did my job. They were asking why I had a great attitude about doing my job. And it come to this place where uh, I didn't walk in and on my first day announced that I was a pastor on staff at a church. Uh, I walked in just determined to make a little bit extra money for my family uh, to ensure that we would have enough when it came time for birthdays and Christmas and, and we could go on family vacations. And, and they soon realized that I was a Christian. You never talk back. You never have a bad attitude. You're always smiling. Can you please explain this to me? And it kept coming up over and over and over again. And so finally I had to tell people, well, I'm a Christian and I've been saved by the grace of God and I live this way because Christ is in me and I have my faults and I'm probably going to mess up and I'm probably going to do something wrong. I'm probably going to have a bad attitude one day. But the reason why I'm like this a majority of the time is because Christ is inside of me. And it gave me this window of opportunity to begin to share with my coworkers the gospel and what Jesus had done in my life. It was my testimony. And it really wasn't about me and my behavior. It was really Christ in me. It was about how Christ had changed me and, and moved my thinking from one way to a different way. And about four months in, I came in contact with a coworker who was a devout atheist and this young lady, uh, it seemed like, in my perspective, she was out to get me. 
She hated the fact that I was a Christian. She hated the fact that I was on staff at a church. She couldn't stand it. She couldn't stand that people were drawn to working with me. She hated everything about it. And a situation arose one day about six months in, and um, a coworker of mine was clocking in for work, and you could tell his demeanor was just completely different. I was getting ready to leave. He was coming in to close, and he stopped me after I'd clocked out, and I got about three steps away from the, the time clock. And um, he says to me, he says, Pastor, he didn't even address me by Josh. And I turned around instantly, and I was like, hey, you know, what's going on? I'd worked with this guy for months. And tears just filled his eyes, and he said, I was just diagnosed with stage four bone cancer. This man was not a Christian. He had no hope in his life at all. And he said to me words that I never thought that I would hear, will you pray for me? And of course, my soul leaped. Yes, yes, I will pray for you. And in that moment of time, we stood by that time clock and I began to share with him how how God may not physically heal you here on this earth, but you can be healed in glory if God takes you home. And I shared the gospel with him in that moment in just a a few, uh, few seconds that I had. And I had an opportunity to pray. And lo and behold, in walks this young lady as I'm in the midst of praying. And it was less than a week later, I was called into the office. And when I got in there, our store manager and our assistant store manager were sitting there waiting for me. They were like, Josh, shut the door, sit down. And they began to reprimand me for praying with a coworker. Not just for the fact that it was a coworker, but for the fact that he was on the clock. And they made it very clear to me, they knew I was a pastor, made it very clear in, in the beginning stages of me working there that I was not allowed to be expressive of my beliefs while I was there, while I was in uniform. And it led to an opportunity to me, for me to share with them why I did what I did, because that person's soul matters to me. That's why I did what I did. That's why I shared. It wasn't about me. I didn't need to be there. If you want to fire me, fire me. I did this because I don't want that person's soul in hell. I want them to be in eternity with me and Jesus because that's far better than anything that we can experience here on this earth. They blew off everything that I said. They let me go. The repercussions of that firing came down to financial stress for my family. And as we are struggling, my wife and I are struggling and asking God, why would you allow this situation to occur in our lives? Why would you allow some sort of or form of persecution to happen because we did what was right, because we followed you? God allowed me to come across a portion of scripture that I was about to teach on to our youth ministry. And in this portion of scripture, Jesus looks to the future and he predicts what is going to happen to his followers. And then maybe this this form of persecution is not something that we are familiar with, but really it was to encapsulate all forms of persecution that his followers would face. And he said something very sobering. In, the, in scripture. But he said something encouraging at the same time. 
And it's going to come to the screen for you. It's in the Gospel of Luke chapter 21. And he says, but before all of this, they will lay hands on you and they will persecute you. And they will deliver you up to the synagogues and the prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to what, church? To bear witness. You know, the gravity of that situation there on the screen lies in acknowledging that despite the eventual triumph of the cause of Christ throughout the entire world, there is an immediate consequence for the faithful following of Jesus. And that oftentimes means that you and I will face persecution of some sort. Maybe not to the extent right now of being arrested and imprisoned, or beaten, or beheaded, but persecution always will follow those who are devoted to following Christ. Always. Now that's a sobering thought, is it not? That's a sobering thought for those who truly love Jesus, but there's something encouraging here. And you're like, well, what is encouraging about going to prison? What is encouraging about being persecuted? Luke recorded the words of Jesus, and what's encouraging is Jesus said, that will be a time for you to bear witness. In the midst of your persecution, it will be a time for you to be a witness, to share your testimony of what God has done in the midst of whatever that circumstance may be. That the imprisonment, the the persecution that we face it will often interrupt our evangelistic strategy. You guys ever been in those situations before? But you want to know what's amazing? That imprisonment, that persecution, it will never interrupt God's evangelistic strategy. Never. It never does. I mean, have you ever stopped to think? We've been in this series, like I said, almost six months. Have you ever stopped to think about how much of Paul's testimony to Christ was given in the midst of circumstances that Paul never planned to be in. Now, please, please do not hear something I'm not saying. I am in no way debunking planning in any form or facet. You guys know I'm a planner. In fact, I was just sitting with the board this last week and I laid out for them the next seven months of church calendar year uh, going into 2024 and even beyond. I'm still writing the rest of the year. Uh, Planning is essential for ministry. Planning is essential to reach people. Paul himself had a very clear evangelistic plan. Uh, Go back and reread the chapters of Acts that we've already covered. There was a plan. Paul wanted to go to specific places at specific times. Read Romans chapter 15 and 16. He had a plan. But the point I'm trying to make to us this morning is that God is the master evangelistic planner. Amen, church? God. And what God wants is people who are prepared to wear the shoes or the, uh, uh, the shoes of readiness with the gospel of peace, as Ephesians 6 talks about. Uh, he wants people who are ready to move with the gospel, to, to go to the places where he's calling us to go. And church, as we are about to launch under the name of Mission Life Church in less than 12 weeks, God is calling us as a church to be ready to move with a heart for lost and hurting people. 
And I'm going to just be really honest with you this morning. As we, as we walk and, and navigate these next several months and weeks and years into the future here, I'm going to just share with you something and be brutally honest with you. There are going to be interruptions and there are going to be surprises and there are going to be things that catch us off guard that we didn't plan for along the way in this venture that we call life. But none of those surprises, none of those interruptions, none of them are without evangelistic purpose. None of them at all. They will deliver you to prisons and before governors and kings, and that will be a time for you to be a witness. That will be a time. Now, Jesus really foreshadowed and and prophesied what was going to happen with Paul. And Luke recorded this earlier for us in the book of Acts chapter 9. It's going to come to the screen for you right now. He said, but the Lord spoke to Ananias or said to Ananias, go, this man, he's speaking about Paul. He is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. In other words, believer in here this morning, always and in every single circumstance, especially the unexpected ones, especially the painful ones, especially the annoying ones and the frustrating ones, be ready to bear witness to Christ in your life. Now our text today is going to be taken from the book of Acts chapters 25 and 26. But before we get there, before we get to the meat, really, of today's message, we need to answer a few questions. I mean, how did Paul get to this place? I mean, how did this specific situation come about that some obscure Jewish Christian missionary has an audience with the king of all Palestine? How did that even happen? Because this wasn't Paul's plan. Paul didn't want to go here. I mean, two years earlier, Paul is on a journey of sharing the gospel and he's arrested on false charges in Jerusalem. And at the time, he got to give his testimony to the entire Jewish uh, Jewish Sanhedrin, just like Jesus said that he would. And then there's this plot to kill Paul, to kill him off. And this time comes where he gives his testimony to Felix, who is the governor in, in Drusilla. Do you guys remember that from last week? Right Now I want us to pick up and see what happens in verse 25, or chapter 25, verse 1. And he says, now after three days, uh, Festus had arrived in the province, and he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal uh, men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summons him to Jerusalem, because they were planning on Uh, an ambush to kill him on the way. Now Festus replied that Paul was going to be kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. And so he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about this man, let them bring charges against him. Now jump with me to verse 12. Then Festus, when, isn't that a terrible name, Festus? 
Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and they greeted Festus. Now I want us to just stop right there. So Felix, this man now, has, is succeeded by Festus. And Festus is now the governor and he gets the scoop on Paul. He meets with Paul, and in that meeting, Paul makes his intentions very clear. I have done nothing wrong except for what God has called me to do. I've proclaimed the gospel. And so he's taken now uh, with, um, with Festus to Agrippa, who is the king over the entire nation. And Agrippa comes in with his wife, Bernice, and they enter the scene. Now, before we go uh, too much further, I want to tell you a little bit about this king uh, so you can understand uh, the family tree that he came from. Agrippa and and Bernice um, are, are these two wicked individuals that are talked about here in the book of Acts. Um, Agrippa is also known more affectionately as King Herod II. He's the last of the Herodians. His father, King Agrippa II's father, uh, was the man who beheaded James, the brother of Jesus. He was also the king that we saw in Acts chapter 12 that was killed and was eaten by worms. Now, his grandfather, Agrippa's grandfather, was the king that beheaded John the Baptist. Agrippa's great-grandfather was the king that killed all babies two and under when the wise men did not return after going to see Jesus. So you understand the, the wicked nature from generation to generation to generation that we see here in Scripture. Now what about Bernice, his wife? Well, we know from history Uh, from biblical history, that Bernice, and as sick as this is, is his sister. And Josephus clearly lays out for us that uh, Agrippa and Bernice were in an incestuous relationship. And so Festus throws this big party for Agrippa, and he throws this big party for, for Bernice, and they meet with Paul, and they have a second trial. So I want you to jump with me to now verse 22. I want you to see what takes place here in the text. And it says, Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. And so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice come with great pomp, and they enter the audience hall with the military tribune and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, So that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Chapter 26, so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hands and made his defense. Now I want you to catch something. Paul said, I consider myself fortunate. He's been in prison for two years on trial now two times And he says, I consider myself fortunate 
that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Now I want you to jump to verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice say to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Does this sound familiar? We already heard this in Acts chapter 9. And he says, but in verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me or by faith in me. Stop right there. After two years in prison, the new Roman governor puts Paul before King Agrippa so they can hear what he has to say. And in this trial, the entire Jewish legal council and three of the highest paid officials in Palestine are present. Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. And all of them hear the gospel because Paul was arrested and imprisoned on false charges. I mean, surely the lesson that we should have already seen and what we need to learn from the words of Jesus back in Luke 21 and from the way they were fulfilled in the life of Paul is this. For you note takers, God has gospel purpose in every single setback in your life. He has gospel purpose in them. Uh, Let me ask this question. Is there anybody in here that is in the midst of a two-year setback? Anybody at all? It doesn't matter what it is. Maybe it's been longer. Maybe it's five years or ten. You're in here this morning and you're in the midst of some sort. Is there anybody in here that's been on a two-year or longer detour from the plans that you had set and God brought you in a different direction? All of us are probably there. I mean, I know we are. We, we were not initially planning to be here in Ionia, Michigan. Uh, We were going to be in a completely different church. In two days before we came here to Ionia, everything happened. We lost our house. the, The church didn't hire anybody because of impropriety that was already going on at the church. I mean, all this stuff happened, and that's what led to God bringing us here almost three years ago. And so we're on a detour, and I want to tell you something that my wife and I and our four kids have learned Over the last three years, do not fret as though the detours in your life have no gospel purpose at all. Because we have to trust in God's wisdom because he allowed whatever it is to happen to put you in the place that you're in. And I want to tell you this and really challenge you this. Put on the the shoes of readiness to move with the gospel in the midst of your detour. Wherever you find yourself. And to take it even a step further, don't take off the shoes of readiness. Don't take off the shoes of readiness thinking that your detour didn't have some purpose for the gospel. 
Jesus said, this will be a time for you to bear witness. This will be a time. You know, I see, I see so much encouragement in Scripture for an exciting way to live our life expectantly under the providence of a sovereign God. You and I get up and I hope and pray that you pray as you're planning your day. And if you don't, I would encourage you to start praying as you plan your day. And as we, as we are praying and, and planning out our day, you and I should, should be t- saying to the Lord every single day, Lord, I know I do not control today. I don't control today. Whatever is going to happen to me, whoever is going to call me at work or at home, whoever I'm going to see at lunch or at the store or every other hundreds and hundreds of unexpected details in this life, God, would you govern my day so that all of the unplanned detours are spiritually valuable to my life? All of them. Help me to see every divine appointment where Satan wants me to see interruptions and irritations. Help me to see them. Because my my prayer for our church has been that you and I would live out our days with a sense of expectancy. That we would live out our days with, with a readiness to move with the gospel wherever it is that God wants us to go. Paul is here in the text standing before Agrippa by God's divine encounter. After two years in a prison, he's there. I mean, how many of you in here have experienced providential red lights in your life? Paul was on his way to Rome. Paul's on his way to Rome and he's arrested and now he's standing before the king of Palestine and Jesus said the reason like this, the reason things like this happen is so that you could be a a witness of my testimony in your life. I mean that, that text that we read today and those are just portions and I would encourage you to go back and read all of chapter 25 and 26. But that text is there for two main reasons. It's there for two reasons. First, it's there to show that God always has a plan. God always has a plan, and Paul's ready to share the message wherever it is that he goes. I mean, it's always proof that God is working things out, even when you and I can't see it. And the second reason why that text is there for us is is that it's a story that tells us about what Jesus wants to achieve through his people. It's a story. Uh, This is not just a record of what happened to Paul. It's a way of showing us the deeper meaning of why we even share the message of Jesus Christ. So with the little bit of time that we have left, I want us to um, look at specifically at a few verses and try to get a clear vision of four things that Christ um, told Paul that he aimed to do through our lives. Four specific things. And I'm going to also preface uh, what I say by saying this. Every individual in here is not called to do exactly what Paul did. 
You're, not everyone's called. Not everyone's called to cross multiple cultures. Not everyone's called to plant churches. Not everyone is called to devote themselves to full-time gospel ministry. But every single one of us is called to be full-time Christians. Amen? Every single one of us. And we, we have seen in this series that you and I are to be a part of the movement that is called the church. And so in Acts chapter 25 and 26, it shows us that you and I have to uh, expect and what we should pray for uh, when we move into people's lives. And Paul begins to share his story uh, to Agrippa in, in Acts 26. And when he gets to this certain part of the story about meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus says something to him. And that's what we're going to look at today. So I want you to go back to verse 16, Acts 26, 16. He says, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. He's telling him now what we're called to do. To appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Listen, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. I'm giving you a calling I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now here's what Christ aims to accomplish through the witness or the testimony of his people. And this is why you and I have to pray with confidence that we're praying according to the revealed will of God in Scripture. And so the first thing that we need to see is that Christ aims for us to go and tell. He aims for us to go and tell. Not just wait for people to come and see. I want you to look back at verse 17. He says, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. And if you have a physical Bible, I want you to underline to whom I am sending you. To whom I am sending you. You know, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, the strategy of our mission is incarnation. Do you know that Jesus came into this world to save sinners? Uh, he left one place and he came to another place. He gave up the very glories and comforts of his heavenly home in order for you and I to go where people were and tell them about the Father. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said something to his disciples. He said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. I'm, I'm sending you to do the work that is still left to be done. And church, our mission in Ionia County and beyond must never be mainly a come and see mission. It must be a go and tell. It must be a go and tell mission. I mean, suppose that every single person sitting in this room and every person that's watching online, every person that's not here because they're sick or they're traveling or they're working, suppose that all of us just arrived here today on the scene in Ionia as a team of tent-making missionaries. You're like, what is a tent-making missionary? That is people who work at secular jobs to support themselves and their families 
to penetrate a given population with the gospel. That's a tent making, and that's all of you. And suppose that we all got together in this building, and this wasn't even our church. Suppose we gathered here, and we're like, none of us have jobs, none of us have places to live. There are about 80 to 100 of us. What should we do to reach this area for Christ? Do you know what the answer would be? Let's all go out and find jobs. Let's all go out and find jobs. All different kinds of jobs all over the area. And let's pray that the Spirit guides us to houses and apartments and mobile home parks. And let's not all live together in one apartment complex. Amen? Amen. Let's not make another Christian industry. But let's live among the people and get jobs where they work. In other words, let's develop a go-and-tell model of penetration instead of a come-and-see model of concentration. We have to go and tell. Isn't it encouraging? I don't know about you, but it's encouraging that's just what God has already done in our church. Amen? He's already done it. We are a church of roughly 80 to 100 people, including those who consistently watch online, and we are tent-making witnesses to the gospel. We're tent-making witnesses to the gospel. We don't all live uh, or work here at the church, and all of God's people said. We live and work amongst the Ionia County natives and beyond, and that's exactly where God wants you. That's exactly what he wants you to do. And that's the first thing that Christ aims to do with your witness is to cause you and I to go and tell, not just wait for people to come and see. Which leads me to this. The second thing that Christ aims to accomplish in our witness is to open the eyes of the unbelievers. To open the eyes of the unbelievers. I want you to draw your attention to the screen Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this age, who is Satan, he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. Now, I want you to see what Christ is conveying through Luke in our, in our text today. Look back at verse 17. He said, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to what? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so church, Christ aims for blindness to be healed. He aims for spiritual blindness to be healed. He aims to give people new spiritual sight. And that's the goal of evangelism. That's the goal of reaching people with the gospel. And so you may be sitting there in this room or online and you're like, how can I do that? How can I do that? How can I open the eyes of the blind? How is that even possible? Well, the answer is, of course, we can't by ourselves. But Paul gives us the answer in 2 Corinthians when he said this, it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It was God who created light over 6,000 years ago in the beginning with an omnipotent let there be light. 
And it was God who now can open the eyes of the spiritual blind. But here in verse 18, Christ is sending Paul and he said, I want you to go to open their eyes. And so if you're a Christian in here this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if the Holy Spirit indwells inside of you because of your salvation, then you're a part of that process Because the Bible tells us that we partner with the Holy Spirit in order for the eyes of the blind to be opened. And we do that in two ways, church. We do that in two ways. Some of you are not going to like the one because it means that you're going to have to take time to do it. And that means that you have to pray for God to open the eyes of the blind when you interact with them. It means that you're going to have to be cognizant that there are lost people that you're going to come in contact with every single day. And the second is that we speak words of truth about Christ so that when people's eyes are open, there is something for them to believe by faith and follow. I'm going to make a statement to you that might mess with your theology this morning. The Holy Spirit is never going to open the eyes of a heart until there is gospel truth in the mind to believe it. I'm going to say it again. The Holy Spirit is never going to open the eyes of the heart until there is gospel truth in the mind to believe. And that's our job. You and I put the truth of Christ into a person's mind and we often do that with our testimony. Because our testimony is really not about us. It's about Christ in us. Did you guys hear the song we were singing earlier? Selected with intentionality on purpose. This is my testimony from death to life. Why? Because grace rewrote my story and I'm here to testify that Jesus Christ the righteous, it is him, it was all him. He's the one who changed me. He's the one who saved me. He's the one who sanctifies me. It's all about him. And it's our job to share that with people. Church, we pray for the miracle of spiritual sight for the blind. And God in his time and in his way, he will say, let there be light in that person's life. And so I want to make this statement to you with all the the love and respect and care in the world as your pastor. Moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles, spiritual mom, spiritual dad. Do not take on more than is your human responsibility in the process. Don't. But far more urgent than taking on more, I beg of you as your pastor, do not take on less. I beg of you. Don't take on less because God uses the truth inside of you to open the eyes of the unbelievers. Which leads me to the third purpose of Christ through our testimony, and that's that unbelievers turn from darkness to light. I want you to look back at verse 18. He said... To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, I want to make two comments to you this morning. 
two comments about how these two turnings relate to the opening of eyes. Darkness, for you note takers, darkness is not strange until your eyes are open. Darkness is not strange until your eyes are open. I want to share a story with you. Um, you guys know, or most of you know, that uh, I was a youth pastor uh, before we came here. And I was in youth ministry for over 10 years. Um, and um, we used to take our student ministry to, uh, we were in just outside of Tampa, Florida, and we used to take our student ministry to a summer camp for seven days. And we would go to Chatsworth, Georgia, which is at the very top of Georgia, and we there was a summer camp that we used to attend there in the mountains, uh, and it, it was I mean we circled the mountain for forty five minutes to get to to get to the top. It seemed like, and uh, the way that this this camp was set up is we would stay in cabins like multi level cabins, and there would be probably fifteen or eighteen other youth ministries there, and we had a, a youth ministry of about one hundred and twenty kids uh, about this time. And so we were taking two like Greyhound style buses filled with teenagers to summer camp. And there were, I don't know, five or six hundred teenagers uh, while we were there each and every year that we went. And so we often got partnered with another, a smaller church uh, where we would allow for them to come in and stay in the cabins with us because they needed space. And I remember this one specific year uh, that a youth group in Georgia brought a 15-year-old boy named Justin. And Justin was blind, completely blind. He, I mean, he was totally blind from everything. He could see nothing, and he had an adult that walked with him every single place that he went. Uh, he had a stick. He wore the big sunglasses. I mean, he, was, he couldn't see anything. And he was in our cabin, and, and one night, I'm a light sleeper. When you work in youth ministry and you're away and you're responsible for 120 teenagers, you sleep very lightly because you want to catch kids doing stuff so that you can yell at them. Uh, but you also want to make sure they live um, as well so that you don't get in trouble. And, um, and of course, I, I was a guy leader, so I was staying in a cabin with probably 40 teenage boys. Um, just get that picture, smelly, uh, loud, obnoxious, and we finally get to sleep, and I'm laying there, and I heard something, um, I heard something in the hallway, and I, I, I get up out of my bed, and I step out of where I'm at, and I, I go to the hallway, and I hear Justin, and he's at the end of the hallway in the bathroom in our cabin on that level, and there's not a single light on in the I mean, it's pitch black. You can't see anything. And I opened my mouth to call out to him where the bathroom light switch was, and I caught myself. And I thought, he's blind, Josh. He's blind. He's never turned on a light his whole life. He's never turned on a light. And it was a strange sensation to me because I see the light all the time. But here's the point. Justin will never, ever, ever treat darkness as something strange unless God miraculously opened his eyes to see the light. Never. 
He would never do it. Darkness is Justin's native land. It is. It's native to him. If his eyes were open to the light, he would turn from darkness to light. And so it is in the spiritual realm, church. Where there is spiritual blindness, people are at home in the darkness of their sin. They're at home. And if you say to that person living in sin, hey, turn on the light, you're going to hurt yourself, they will have no idea what you're even talking about. They'll have no clue at all. First, the eyes have to be open. Then they will turn and walk in the light. But the eyes have to open first. And so darkness is not strange until your eyes are opened. Which leads me to say this to you. Satan's only power over us is through deception. It's through deception. The other comment that I make has to do with the turning. It says to turn from Satan, the power of Satan to God. Do you see what it implies about the power of Satan? That we will turn from him when our eyes are opened. Paul said, I I want to see their eyes open. I want to see them turn from the power of Satan to God. And that tells us that the only power that Satan has over men and women is through deception. It's through making things look like something that they're not. And so when the eyes are open, when they see Christ the way that he really is, And to see God and the world and sin and righteousness and heaven and hell the way that they are, Scripture tells us that the power of Satan will be broken. That it's broken. The power of Satan is broken by the spirit of truth. So you you Bible scholars out there, what were the first and the last pieces of the armor that Paul listed in Ephesians. Don't flip there. Don't get on your phone and go, what were the first and the last pieces of the armor that Paul listed in Ephesians 6 that protect you from the principalities and the powers and make you effective in fighting against them? Do you guys know? It's the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit, the first and the last. And both of those point back to the Word of God. Both of them. In your witness to the truth of Christ, God aims to open the eyes of the blind and deliver them from Satan because the only way that Satan can hold you is by deceiving you about what is truly desirable. It's the only way. Which leads me to this last point. The fourth thing that Christ aims to do Um, to accomplish through your testimony is mentioned at the end of verse 18 and he says to give forgiveness and a place. To give forgiveness and a place. Do you know that the forgiveness that you and I receive in Christ involves the release of, of the sinner from God's penalty? It's the complete dismissal of every single charge against you. All of it. I love what Paul said In the book of Colossians chapter 1, he said, In him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, and that leads to the forgiveness of sin. 
But the Amplified, you guys know I teach out of the ESV typically, and I'll reference others occasionally. The Amplified Bible translates Colossians 1.14 differently. He says, in him, speaking of Jesus, we have the forgiveness of our sins and the cancellation of its penalties. In the cancellation of its penalties. Do you know, to some people, forgiveness seems weak. It seems weak. It's like letting an undeserving person win, but it has no connection to weakness or even emotions at all. Forgiveness isn't granted to you and I because we deserve it. No one deserves forgiveness. Nobody does. But forgiveness was a deliberate act of God's love and mercy and his grace towards you and I. It was God's decision to not hold something against you despite what you've done. And that forgiveness is a crucial part of your salvation. It's crucial. Do you know when Jesus hung on the cross, it's recorded in John 19, that Jesus said three words before he took his final breath. He said, it is finished. Jesus was literally saying, Tetelestai, it's paid for, it's over, it's done. I, I took the punishment that you deserved, and when I forgive you, you're free. You're free. You no longer live under the, the debt that you had. Your sin is completely wiped out. Which leads me to say this to you. It's impossible, 100% impossible for you to have salvation without forgiveness. And that salvation is God's deliverance for you from the consequences of your sin. God's salvation in Christ is the ultimate example of extending forgiveness. And it has to be accepted and it's accepted through repentance and faith. And when it's accepted, church, when it's accepted, he said you're given a place amongst those who are sanctified by him in faith. Man, what greater blessing. Not just to be rescued and saved, but to be brought into the family. I've shared with you multiple times that when I was a kid, um, of course I was a child and I did stupid things, but I, I couldn't stand the old hymns that we would sing in church. I think maybe because I didn't understand them at times. Um, and then I was frustrated because I said, why, why would we use a word like bulwark in a hymn? Like Nobody even knows what that is. But there's a song that we used to sing, and as I've gotten older, I have grown to love all of the old hymns that we used to sing when I was a child. In fact, I probably drive our children nuts when we're in the car, and I turn on um, like the hymned versions of things by Bart Millard, and he, you know, just a closer walk with thee. 
right? Granted, Jesus, if you please, right? Or, you know, I come to the garden alone. Well, while the dew is still on the roses, a song that I've grown so fondly of, or, or the old rugged cross. But there's a song that um, I cannot help but think of when I see the end of verse 18. You will be brought in with those who are sanctified by faith in me, and it's the song. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You guys know the song? I've been washed in the fountain, right? It's a song that we used to sing, and I used to dread it because we it would be coming, and I was like, oh, we have five minutes left of service. We're going to start singing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God at the end of every service when we left. But church, it's such a blessing, a wonderful blessing that is given to you. It's given to me it's given to us as a body of believers, and I'm, I want us to never, ever, ever take for granted the fact that we are given fellowship through the body of Christ. There are people here in this body that want to hug you and embrace you and sit with you and tell you that you're loved and that it's going to be okay and that God's going to change you because he loves you, and I want to walk with you through that. That's a part of our fellowship and maybe you are in here this morning and you're like me. It may not seem like this to you, but I would rather be locked in my office with my books, never talking to people ever. But there is a blessing that comes from interaction with other believers. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but you are not meant to walk this journey alone. You weren't. As difficult as people are, you were not meant to walk this road alone. And so Christ aims for you and I to testify the truth of the gospel. And when that happens, the eyes of the blind are open and they turn from darkness of sin to the light of righteousness. And he aims that they would turn from the power of Satan who holds them by lies to come to God. And he aims that their sins would be forgiven and by faith not legalistic barriers and burdens, but by faith that he would join or she would join or that child would join or that teen would join the saints in the pursuit of holiness. And so church, I'm asking you this morning the same question that I've been asking you for six months. Are you a part of the movement are you a part of the movement? And if not, what can you do to be a part of the movement? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And God, we are so grateful because of the transformative power of your word. It reminds us uh, of the unpredictable yet purposeful ways in which you work in our lives.
And we can't even get away from it, Lord. We have to acknowledge that you have a plan for each one of us. Even in the midst of every detour and every setback that we could ever face or ever think of facing, you have a plan. So I'm asking, Lord, that you would give us strength to trust your wisdom. And Lord, as we, as we go about our lives, as we walk out of this building in just a few moments, I pray that we are ready to bear witness to, to the truth in our lives, the testimony that you have given to us in the midst of every unexpected opportunity. God, we pray for the opening of the eyes of those who are spiritually blind that we interact with and encounter, those in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Holy Spirit, I'm asking of you, we're begging of you that you would already begin working in the hearts of the unbelievers before we even get to them. That you would reveal to them the light of the gospel. And at the same time, Lord, I ask that you would give us wisdom. That you would give us wisdom to speak. That you would give us humility to partner with you and the miracle of spiritual sight in these people's lives. God, I lift up to you those who are in darkness, trapped by deception and lies. Jesus, I ask that you would break every chain of Satan, every chain uh, that is a lie, and I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead them to the freedom that is found solely in you. And finally, Lord, I, I, I thank you. We can't, we can't have a conversation about this passage and not be thankful for the gift of forgiveness. We can't even have this conversation and not be thankful for the place that you give us in the family. And so, Lord, give us strength and boldness to help us to live out our days with expectancy and a readiness to move with the gospel. And I just ask and pray all of these things in the mighty and the precious and the holy name of Jesus. Um, amen and amen.